Welcome to Houston Sports Talk with your host, Robert Land. Thanks for listening to the best Houston sports podcast. Well, the rocket season mercifully ended over the weekend, but later in the show, we're going to look back at a couple of emotional days for rocket fans that have nothing to do with the current team, thankfully. And before we get to that, though, I can't wait to get to the old ballpark with my co-host and regular sidekick, a fellow H-Town sports junkie and longtime journalist, Stephen Kerr. And Stephen, the Astros won six out of seven in the last week. They swept the four-game series with the Rangers since you and I have spoken. And it's getting real hard to find stuff to complain about. Well, it certainly is, Robert, especially in a season that, you know, quite honestly, I think I said this on the last podcast, but... You know, my biggest issue with the Astros is just you don't really know what team they are because between the, you know, the problems in the bullpen and even the the great offensive lineup that they're supposed to have, you know, leaving runners on base. And they still did that throughout the six game winning streak. I mean, there, there were some instances where they could have had even more blowouts than they did. But awfully hard to complain, though, when you win six in a row and four of them, you know, really. And I guess, you know, even in the Angels series, too, it's just against teams that you really should beat. And that was the case here over the past week. Yeah. And there was a game. I want to say it was the Thursday game, specifically the one that you're talking about where they were just not getting guys in. It goes to extra innings. And, you know, it was like something something like two for 15 at one point. That's correct. So, yeah, it it did. but, But that's when, you know, when your pitching comes through the way it's supposed to, it can bail you out of situations like that. And that obviously the Astros need more than that uh, or need more of that uh, if they're going to continue to keep up this kind of a pace throughout the season. Astrosfuture.com's Jimmy Price came on the show a couple of weeks ago and basically predicted the Astros future. We got to give him some love for predicting Kyle Tucker's recent hot streak. He said Tucker's luck was due to change. The numbers show he was hitting the ball hard, but just wasn't getting the results. Over the last two weeks, Stephen, OPS is 12-14, 14 OPS. Yeah, that's more of the Kyle Tucker that I think we're used to seeing. And, uh, you know, we've talked about how what of hard luck he's had. He's been hitting the ball hard most of the season. You know, even in Sunday's game against the Rangers, his first three at-bats, they were all flyouts, but he was getting good wood on the ball. So it's good to see that Kyle Tucker's hitting has improved. Carlos Correa, maybe he's come out of the funk that he's been in. You know, Jose Altuve has gone back to being the Jose Altuve that we know and love. So, you know, it's it's things like that. Bregman's been doing well. And, of course, Alvarez, he was off on Sunday. He's uh, got some leg soreness, so got to keep an eye on that. But Jordan has been Jordan. So, yeah, all of that. But but Kyle Tucker was the guy that we kept pointing to, saying he's got to get things going, you know, especially with the bottom end of the Astros lineup being up and down as it is. Hey, even Miles Straw is starting to get into the act a little bit, a little bit. You know, he's, we're not going to mistake him for George Springer or, or even Tucker or Altuve or anybody else. But any contribution from that bottom part of the lineup, uh, that's going to be another key for the Astros to continue to be successful. Even the machete has awoke from his early season slumber over the last couple of weeks. His OPS in that time, 802. And you mentioned Jordan. He's fine, according to James Click. They were just resting him because he's maybe a little bit tired. But that concerns me because they, they keep saying they want to put him out in left field. They're going to start putting him out in left field. He's tired after being a DH. It's not like he's got to run around or stand around when they're on defense. 
<laughs> well, that's true, and and that is a concern. I think that's really going to be the one thing that's going to hold him back. And I don't know if it's about being tired, as in fatigue, kind of tired. But if his legs are sore, you know, just based on all that, it, it's going to be hard to imagine that he's going to be able to play much outfield. But boy, Robert, if he could just, you know, give you something in left field, because that's really that's the position he's going to have to play if he is going to play the outfield. He's just it, it really would help if he could fit in somewhere else. I mean, being a full-time DH, you know, with a hitter like Alvarez, you can't go wrong there. But he really needs to start being more versatile. And anything in left field, anything he can give you there is going to be a bonus for sure at this point. Yeah, again, James Click emphasized it was not that he was hurting or they were bothering him. It was just the fact that he was just a little bit tired after playing so many games. I mean, they've. I think they've had a stretch where they've played 26 out of 27 days. So maybe that's part of it. Well, I think a lot of it is cautionary too. I mean, he is coming back from those knee surgeries. I think they're, they're just being conservative. It is a, a long season. So I think as much as they're just being conservative with his playing time in that regard. You know, I'm out of superlatives for Yuli. His OPS is now 952, leads the team in walks with 20, on base percentage 400. His OPS with runners on is... 11-14. This is the Yuli that we've seen in the past, but like it's bonus. It's like, uh, you know, they come out with the new Energizer Plus battery for Yuli. <laughs> yeah, you know, and, and this was a guy that struggled so much at the end of last season in the postseason. You talk about a man on a mission. I mean, during the offseason, whatever he did, uh, he has certainly figured it out. And don't forget, you know, he... He had to come out of the lineup and miss a couple of games because he wasn't feeling well. He came out suddenly. You know, we were kind of concerned about what was going on. But he comes back in, and it's almost like he never left. He just picked up where he left off. So, boy, I, I am so relieved because I love watching Yuli play. I, so I, I just knew, it's like, this is not the Yuli that we're used to seeing last year. Surely he's going to come back strong and have I, – I don't know that I was expecting – you know, the, the pace that he's on right now, but I certainly was expecting to see more of the old Yuli Gurriel as in the great player Yuli Gurriel, and that's what we're seeing this year. We've got two positive notes for the banged-up pitching staff and one negative. Framber Valdez was scheduled to make his first rehab start Sunday for Corpus. It got rained out, but that's still super encouraging. That's the positive, uh, one of the positives. Number two, on Sunday, Anoli Paredes pitched a scoreless ninth inning. He's back, and that is a beautiful thing. But, Stephen, we had to sacrifice the health of Urquidy to get Anoli back just as he was hitting a groove. Yeah, I tell you what, Jose Urquidy, I mean, he got off to a shaky start. The first few starts, it just was so uncharacteristic of him. But he was putting it together, and then, of course, you know, the shoulder is what, you know, kind of concerning. But it, it seems like at this moment, anyway, uh, it's nothing serious, but you just want to be conservative with that. So, you know, if you can get him back, and uh, of course, Fromber, yeah, he was supposed to pitch Sunday. It was uh, Sugarland that he's with, as well as Jake Odorizzi. Uh, they're both, as we're recording this on Monday, are scheduled to, uh, well, I think Valdez is scheduled to pitch Monday and Odorizzi on Tuesday. So, you know, these guys are trying to work their way back. So, with all those positives, if the Astros could just get everybody healthy at the same time, I don't know, Robert, that's a lot to ask for especially the way things have gone this year with the pitching and with 162 games, nothing is going to stay the same, but you'll take the good news anywhere you can get it at this moment. Yeah. James Click said, you know, they're 
pitching back to back at this point, Fromber and Odorizzi, they sort of are on the same time schedule, but he goes, yeah, we can't get caught up in thinking, well, one guy's ready to come back. So the other guy's ready to come back. They're going to follow both of them. You know, he says we have a timetable for Fromber, but he's blown up every timetable we've had. It's been called a, a, a miracle comeback, you know, and, and, and all that. So, you know, that, that cannot be better news for what we're seeing with, with the Fromber situation. And hopefully Odorizzi is right there and right behind him. What do you think of what Andre Scrub has done since his return, Stephen? He gave up the two-run homer Sunday, but in his two weeks, seven appearances, 4.7 ERA, not great, but the whip is still 1.17. He's been decent, and and I think really for someone like him, you know, coming into the season, you just kind of wondered. Again, he put him in that list of these young guys who had such a phenomenal year last year. Was he going to be able to repeat it? Well, of course, he had the injury, so... I think, you know, Andre Scrub, especially when it comes to guys on base, you know, he, he really comes through in that regard, too. So, no, I I haven't had too much complaint. He didn't give up the two-run homer, but otherwise he was effective in that game and in the last few. So it's good to see these guys. You just you know that some of, some of them hopefully will level out, and Andre Scrub is one of those guys I think is leveling out. If we could just get some of these other ones like – Joe Smith and, and Brooks Raley to be more consistent. Even Brooks Raley has been pitching okay in the last couple of outings. Yeah, this Astros bullpen really needs somebody like Andre Scrub to come through. With Anoli coming back, that moves the Brooks Raley's and the Joe Smiths down on the pecking order. That's good. I mean, we had a, a, a rare Ryan Stanek bad outing, and hopefully he's not going to start falling apart because – you know, we we got to get some guys that I, I don't know about you, Stephen. I'm, I'm just looking for the guys that I'm, I'm I'm excited about and happy that they're coming into the game and in big mid to late inning situations once the starter comes out. Yeah, that's what you need, Robert, because this bullpen has has just been beaten up and and very ineffective uh, off and on this whole season. So somebody needs to step forward, you know. And and as some of these other pitchers like Framber Valdez, Jake Odorizzi come back. It's a good problem to have, but you're going to have to make some tough decisions of who comes out of that bullpen and maybe gets optioned and who goes into the bullpen from a starting rotation that could, over the next two or three weeks, if nothing else happens, have seven pitchers. Well, you're not going to have a seven-man rotation. So some of these question marks, you know, they're going to figure it out, but you hope that from this you can start maybe getting a more consistently effective bullpen out of the deal. I'm not getting my hopes up because I've watched the Rockets for the last few months and I've watched one injury after another. And just when you think, oh, well, this guy's coming back. And then it was like, oh, well, three more guys are now out. So we'll see. Let's get to that problem. And and, and I, I can't wait for that problem. Like who who can they move out of this uh, rotate? Who are they going to have to, you know, maybe move down to Sugarland for a little bit or whatever? But yeah, that, let's get there. Um another guy like another positive though I got to get to because I can I can be a little bit tough on Lance McCullers he has turned a corner I think his changeup, all of a sudden a legit weapon this year which I, I just don't remember that ever being any sort of a weapon which is so good against uh lefties and then he's got control of it which is a big deal it looks like he knows where it's going so as he's you know, throwing it more, he's getting more confidence in it and he knows where it's going to go. And he's using it honestly, also against righties too. his ERA 2.70, 
The league is hitting 173 against him. Big ups to Lance. Well, you know what? I wish I could remember the date of when you said this last year, Robert, but uh, do, do you still want Lance to go in the bullpen? Because <laughs> we did talk about that, how, you know, maybe he would be better out of the bullpen. But no, in all seriousness, I, I think I, I've always said that it takes a pitcher at least one full season to come back from a Tommy John surgery like Lance has had. You know, last year he was kind of finding his way back. This year, he sure looks like he's putting it together and being the kind of pitcher that we kept hoping he would be. Now, again, the question is his durability over the course of an entire season. That's really the the, the glaring question that we're still going to ask. How much can he keep this up throughout the rest of the year? I was going to say, I beg everybody not to get too overconfident with Lance, but to me, the big thing was a guy adding a pitch several years into his career that you know, makes it easier for him to get guys out an out pitch that he can throw that they're not expecting because if they know the curveball is coming every time he needs a big pitch, Steven, they can foul that thing off over and over again. And that's how these games get extended for him to where he can't get past the fifth inning because he's just like throwing so many pitches per inning. Yeah, that is really going to be the question, Robert. And and look, anytime you can add a pitch to your arsenal, especially this deep into a career and coming off an injury like Lance did, all the better for him. As, as you know, he, his signature, of course, the curveball. And, you know, we still talk about the, the 24 straight curveballs he threw the Yankees in 2017. I mean, you're not going to see that again, I don't think. But you, you just add up those other pitches that if he can just get command of them, which he seems to be doing, then maybe he can be the consistently good pitcher that we've been waiting for year after year. Also, I got to give a lot of credit to this Astros broadcast crew on Sunday because it's rare when I see them do something new and really strong. And what they did was they talked to Lance before uh, either this game or one of the games recently, probably before one of the games recently. And so they got Lance to explain what he was doing with his different pitches. And then they were explaining how pitches move and the specificity of you know, what a pitcher looks to do. And they had Stanton talking about it. And then Blum gave it from his perspective. And that was extraordinary to watch. And just something that I thought gave the regular fan just an idea of like, this is something I I, I just don't think we talk about enough. We just assume everybody knows what the pitcher's doing and what he's throwing and how he throws it and what the pitch is supposed to do. And, and all of that stuff It was really good. You know, it's funny you say that because unfortunately me leaving here in Austin, and with uh, the uh, TV provider that I have, I don't get AT&T Sportsnet, so I don't I don't get to see the Astros games on television. However, I, I do catch the radio broadcasts. And uh, Steve Sparks, you know, who, of course, works with Robert Ford on the broadcast, he was off, I think, this weekend. But on Sunday, I didn't get to listen to Saturday. I, I don't know who filled in. But on Sunday, none other than Shane Reynolds made a guest appearance. And, and he was with Robert throughout the game. So it was great to hear Shane and, and, you know, they were kind of doing the same thing when they were talking about McCullers and just the different type of pitches that he's mastering and, you know, expanding. the. So you talk about a, a former Astros pitcher who uh, had some greatness in his own right. Shane Reynolds, he had some great insight on uh, Lance McCullers and man, he, you know, Shane with that drawl, it was, it was good to hear him kind of a, a different take and uh, a different voice in the Astros uh, radio broadcast booth over the weekend. Yeah, I've heard Shane over the years. He always appeared to be somebody that if he had wanted to be 
a color analyst, he would have been really, really good. Just like Billy Wagner. Billy Wagner's another guy you could throw in that in that mix too. Yeah, ab- absolutely. I mean, Billy <laughs> and Billy would be no holds barred. He'd tell you exactly what he thinks about everything. So uh, those guys, I, I think, are fantastic ex Astros that really bring something. And the last pitcher that I wanted to talk about that I, I just feel like we got to show a little bit of love for Luis Garcia, who continues to be the emergency starter with all the injuries and six starts. He hasn't given up more than three earned runs in any of them. Dusty's kept him on a short leash, but I'm totally confident when he takes the hill. I mean, he doesn't get, you know, past the fifth inning typically, but Steven, not spectacular, but Luis Garcia just rock solid. Just good enough, Robert. And, you know, I mean, it's, it's not like he completely falls apart like some pitchers do. He can get out of messes and, and he can keep damage to a minimum. But unfortunately, I, I wonder if, if he's going to be one of the guys that could be out, either be put in the bullpen or even optioned out when some of these starters start coming back. I mean, somebody's going to have to be the odd man out. And as much as I love Luis Garcia, and I don't think, you, you know, I'm not saying you're going to see the last of him, certainly. I, I think he does have a bright future with the Astros, but I think he's still kind of learning things and, and getting his feet wet. So, yeah, he's been effective. He's definitely been what the Astros have needed. They've needed emergency starting. He's been able to come in and at least do, as you said, a solid job of that. Over the long term, I I think you'll see more of him. But just in the next few weeks, as these guys come back, he could be one of those guys that uh, could be relegated either to the bullpen or even optioned, if for no other reason, to keep him sharp as a starter, because that's something you want to keep an eye on, too. Yeah, him and Belak seem to be the obvious ones. One of those guys, if you do get healthy, again, I, I don't even get excited about that yet, but if you do get no. healthy, just as I think about it, okay, one of those guys could go down. And I don't know what, where their options are with, with either one of the guys, but, I mean, it, it's one of those things where Belak or Garcia goes down and they can be a starter, and then the next injury, the next thing that happens, you've got them stretched out to where they can – you know, handle longer innings. And I think that that's going to be the key with them. Was there anything else with the Astros that you wanted to get into this week? You know, there was something interesting I saw, Robert, uh, you know, of course, with all the changes that have occurred in the minor league structure or the restructure of the minor leagues, you know, I, the Astros are the only team in major league baseball who have decided to provide furnished housing for their minor leaguers. You know, in past years, a lot of them would stay with host families or, they, you know, they were kind of on their own. But the Astros are the only team in the majors right now who stepped up this year and are providing furnished housing for all their minor. I'm talking about at all the levels for their minor league players. So, you know, these guys, they, they did get a bump in, in pay. I think all minor league teams did and all the players. But, boy, that leaves some room. You know, they they have more flexibility with their salary. They can spend it on other things. So, hey, hats off to the Astros for stepping up and taking care of their minor league guys. Okay, before we get too excited, I I was listening to James Click, and this is something that they're doing for this season and this season only, they think, because the pandemic has forced a rule for minor leaguers that you are not allowed to stay with host families. And a lot of these guys stay with host families uh, they don't want you staying with other people like many people in a group because of the pandemic. And that's another big thing. Now, if they're the only ones doing this, then that's great on James Click. But, Stephen, there was one thing that I thought was real interesting about what James Click said. He said these guys, a lot of times they're 
six, seven guys in, in, in a house or a room or something like that because they're trying to save money. And he said, that's something that we've really got to think about because, you know, it's one thing I've never understood about minor league baseball is they don't think in terms of like, this is an investment. This is like how, how we can separate ourselves from other ball clubs is to invest more in the development. And the development has to be not just, you know, what pitches this guy's throw and what kind of coaches that we're sending down there. The development has to be, let's think in terms of if these guys are going to be a big leaguer, let's have them eat right. The Astros have changed the, the food that they're giving these guys as well. It's not just peanut butter and jelly sandwiches after every game as a spread. They're, you also have to think about, you know, if they're sleeping with six, seven guys in a room or three or four or whatever, if there's a lot of guys sleeping together and they're on mattresses, you know, these, you know, like air mattresses or whatever, how good is their sleep going to be? Because that's something that matters for the health of your athlete. You know, he's got to get good sleep. He's got to eat right. This is all super important for just you and me, Stephen, much less players. Well, that's certainly true, Robert. And I think you're starting to slowly see that in Major League Baseball that, uh, you know, maybe not so much to furnishing minor leagues and things like that. But I think teams are starting to realize that the overall development of a player, you know, especially in the minor leagues and the lower levels, it's going gonna, it's gonna to help them in the long run. I mean, for decades and decades, we hear about the long bus rides and, yeah, staying with host families or sleeping on the floor in, in these dingy apartments or, you know, that, that the players have to pay for themselves. So, I, I, I mean, I think it's time for change. I mean, if COVID has done anything, Robert, I think it has at least to some degree changed the way we think about your product. And in this case, with the Astros or, you know, any team, really, it, their product, as far as their farm system goes, is the players and, and taking better care of them from an overall standpoint, not just learning the fundamentals of playing baseball on the field. So, yeah, the Astros doing some stuff that's different. And, and to me, this is just it's long overdue. If you're going to talk about analytics and how we can get an edge with uh, with other teams, you know, vying for development and and that sort of thing it's not just these international camps which that that was one of the things that the astros did really good they had that great what was it a venezuela wasn't there like a venezuela camp that they used to have yes that, that they yeah. used to get guys from there all the time that this is a thing that's as obvious as the nose on your face it's like well, what, what what's your guy eating how, how much sleep is he getting remember a couple of years ago we were talking about josh james and they found out that he wasn't sleeping right and all of a sudden once they got him right, he was throwing fastballs five miles an hour faster or whatever. He became 95, 100 mile an hour, you know, big flame James for a little bit. And yeah, he's the most recent case history you can point to and say, look, here's a guy that he figured it out. It, it wasn't that he just wasn't, you know, getting his pitches or just not having good command. I mean, there was something much more deep rooted than that. I mean, it was this, it was simple, as you said, but it, it's like hiding in plain sight. It was there, but you have to discover it. And Josh James discovered it. And you may see more of this kind of thing, though, down the line as these players develop. And, you know, some of the stories we may be hearing about some of these guys coming up through the system of how maybe they changed a habit here or eliminated a, a bad habit there. And it suddenly changed the whole way they play the game. And that's, and, you know, that's the beauty of baseball, Robert, and, the, and really sports in general, if all the other sports could figure that out. Because it, it is about overall development. And it's not even just the physical aspect. It's the way you approach the game mentally. And we, we think of baseball as much of a mental game. 
especially from a pitching standpoint, but, you know, even from hitting. I mean, the game is a mental, physical, emotional game all the way through. Speaking of uh, emotional games, they go up against their, I guess, basically big nemesis in the AL West over the last few years, the A's, and they're neck and neck. It's a big series. The Astros right now trailing by a half game. It's just one game in the win column that the Astros are behind. The loss column is exactly the same, but Steven, I mean, if you look at what's going on in the division, the Astros run differential. I mean, that's what we measure teams a lot by these days when we're thinking the potential and where they are. The Astros are plus 56. Uh, The A's are minus eight, despite having a half game lead in the division. Nobody else is even in the plus column in the division. Yeah, you know, it's crazy how statistics line up and, and that it proves it doesn't always tell the story. I know it's May, Robert. It's certainly way early in the season, but this is a big series for the Astros. As you said, the A's are their nemesis. I think they're the team. I know you you picked them, I believe, to finish second. Uh, I think I picked them third. So it looks like right now you're, you're right on target as far as, you know, winning the AL West is concerned. But it is a big series. And with the way the Astros are playing, uh, you know, the, this is, I think, going to tell at least to some degree what things are going to look like over the next few weeks. So, a big series that starts on Tuesday against the A's. Yeah, whenever I pick against the Astros, just everybody understand it's a wink-wink that, hey, I don't want to pick the Astros to win. Well, now you picked them to win the division, didn't you? Yeah, yeah, but I, I don't typically give them super high expectations because, you know. <laughs> well, because, they're, yeah, they're, they're Houston. <laughs> That's why. And the jinxing, jinx factor, you know. that, that That's it. All right, we'll 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 let you slide on that. All right, let's get to the Rockets because imagine if you were in a coma for the entire Rocket season and you woke up just in time to watch their last game on Sunday. You'd be asking, hey, why is DJ Augustine and Kelly Olenek on the team and starting? Then you'd be like, who's Anthony Lamb and Cam Oliver and Cam (laughs) Reynolds? You mean that second round pick KJ Martin is actually a starter? Wait, Armani Brooks is in the rotation? The former Cougar? I mean, Steven, this is just, it's unreal. You look at the Astros roster for the last game and you're like, what the hell? What happened? Uh, You know, if I was in a coma, Robert, for a year and woke up and go, wait, did the Rockets move somewhere? And, you know, the NBA just replaced them with a a G League team? Well, that's kind of what, (laughs) that's kind of what it's been throughout a lot of the season. You got a lot of G League guys in there or guys that they had on 10-day contracts and, of course, you know, the trades with Olenek and Augustine and these guys. So, yeah, that's probably what I would think. Wait, did, did the Rockets, like, move somewhere else and they they just got a G League team in, in Houston and they just decided to call it the Rockets? Um, yeah, the, the weirdest season, I have to say, Robert. And I've, I've followed the Rockets since 1972. That was the first year I started following them. And they've had some miserable seasons, you know, the, right after they traded Moses Malone right before they got Ralph Sampson and Hakeem Olajuwon in back-to-back years. Those were pretty miserable, but I, I man, this season, I'll be honest with you, I'm glad it's over, but I bet I'm not as glad as, as the players and the coaches and everybody affiliated with the Rockets directly. I'm out of words. I mean, Steven Silas, uh, I don't think he's this next Phil Jackson kind of guy, but I, I can't imagine there's been a harder season on an NBA coach than what Silas outside of, you know, you lose somebody close to you. Like what happened with, I think it was Monty Williams lost his wife a few years ago. Um, and, and I just, I can't imagine though, just on the court and some of the stuff that they were dealing with. I mean, we, we had guys going to strip clubs and getting beat up. We had, uh, 
you know, James Harden quitting on the team a week or two into the season. He wasn't even trying. You had literally, it was one injury after another. You're, you, you went beyond G leaguers to, they were getting injured guys and injured exceptions and stuff like that. They used more players than anybody in basketball. I, it might be more than anybody in Rockets. I would assume it's more than anybody in Rockets history. It was like close to 30 players that they used all together. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm out of words for this. This is, it's, it's unreal. Well, and you know what's crazy, Robert, is that, you know, the, what did they win? 17 games. It, it was not the worst in Rockets history. It was only the third worst record in Rockets history. But man, it, it definitely felt far and beyond like the worst. But you know what I always say, Robert, whenever I have a bad day, I, I try to tell myself, tomorrow's going to be the exact opposite. Tomorrow is going to be so much better. And I think as, if, if you're a Rockets fan, you have to feel like surely things can't get any worse, can they? And the season's over, so that's a plus right there. But the, the other is that things have got to be better next year. You, you've got to go up. And the question is, how far up can they go with a coach like Steven Silas? I mean, it. yeah, it'd be easy to to sit and point to him and say, well— I don't know if he's going to be a great developer of players and, you know, young talent and in the midst of everything he went through and the team went through this year. I, I've even done that myself, and I think I've even said it on the podcast. Is Steven Silas the right coach for this team moving forward the next two or three years? I don't know. I don't think that anybody knows, you know, from having one year that was just so terrible and so many weird things happen. I think, you know, next year, we will probably find out more about what Steven Silas really is capable of or isn't. And let me just point out, I'm not confident in Steven Silas long-term. However, I mean, there are guys that have developed this year extremely well, guys like Jay Sean Tate and KJ Martin. You're seeing it. My, My concern, I think, is more on the defensive side with Steven Silas. And, and Steven, remember that I said last week that if you're choosing between signing a deal next year for Armani Brooks or Kyrie Thomas, speaking of some of the young developmental guys, I would choose Thomas because of his defense and just a more 3D game. He's got a lot more stuff that in his bag, I guess, at this point. The Rockets agreed with me. They signed Thomas to a cheap multi-year deal. Now, maybe they can do the same thing with Armani Brooks. And Armani's looked, he's looked way better the last week, not just shooting, but it looks like he's starting to do different things like defense and, you know, maybe uh, learning a little bit how to drive to the basket and, and make something happen there. But of course, right after they signed Kyrie Thomas, as as the Rockets luck goes, as Houston sports luck goes, <laughs> his Achilles explodes into a million, well, it didn't explode into a million pieces, but no, he had a minor Achilles issue, which cost him the last two games right after they signed him, right after they inked the deal. Uh, yeah, that, that's just, what are you going to say about that? I mean, I, I would have agreed with you. I, I think you get more options with Kyrie Thomas, but I, I hope that they will at least give a little bit more of a look to Imani Brooks. Okay, I admit it. You know, he's a hometown guy, so I'm going to pull for him. But uh, yeah, it's just going to be interesting to see how either one or both of those guys develop. You know, and then the big question too, Robert, is can they retain Kelly Olenek? I, I don't know. I'm not very confident, but I sure am pulling for it to happen. You just, you've got to have that veteran presence and leadership. And Olenek has been effective since he's been with the Rockets. You know, in the last game, I mean, he didn't even play, I think, maybe half the game. But he still scored 16 points. And and he just provides so many other intangibles that, you know, maybe it didn't help the Rockets win that many more games. But I think moving forward, especially if you're going to have a rebuild type of situation, 
you've got to have guys like him and Christian Wood around some of these young guys that currently have, and then whoever else you get in the draft moving forward. It just depends on what they're going to offer Olenek. It, it, it seems like they would have to offer him more money than other teams because why would you want to be with the Rockets? This is a team that was the worst in basketball. Uh, the, their future is you know, maybe four or five years down the road. If Olenek likes Houston and Steven Silas, sure, that's great. But you know, most of these guys, they're, they're competitors. They want to win. And Kelly Olenek, I'm sure, you know, after tasting what he tasted last year with Miami being in the finals, he's going to want to win. But yeah, I, I hope they can get that done, uh, Stephen. But we got to talk about the, the biggest stories over the weekend. Let's start talk about this guy named Bill Worrell. Uh, just an end of an era for Rockets basketball in the last week with Bill announcing his retirement. He had his last game as the Rockets play-by-play voice on Friday between Worrell's last game on Friday and Rudy T's induction into the Hall of Fame on Saturday. I shed quite a few tears over the 24-hour period. Yeah, I tell you what, Robert. uh, I grew up, as you know, in Houston. I was born and raised there. And I left after I graduated from high school. And Bill Worrell, you know, here's a guy that when I was growing up, he was the main sportscaster on the 6 and 10 o'clock news on KPRC Channel 2. I mean, that you talk about going way back there. And then I, I remember in the 1980s, he was uh, the Astros play-by-play. And, of course, you know, the Rockets as well for, for so long on the old home sports entertainment. You may remember that, Robert, HSE, mm-hmm. which, of course, eventually yeah. merged, merged into Fox Sports Southwest. But, yeah, I mean, so many years that I watched Bill Worrell. And here's a guy, you know what, he wasn't afraid to tell it like it is. I mean, even if it stirred up some feathers, you know, most recently before James Harden was traded in a preseason game, Bill Worrell's coming out saying, who needs James Harden? Well, he didn't mean it quite that way. But, you know, here's a guy that he overcame alcoholism and he just, again, a fixture in people's homes and I think we, we put so much concentration on the players as people to watch. But when you can point to an announcer, when, when the announcer can also be part of your daily life as much a part of the game when you're watching it, well, Bill Worrell was one of those guys. So it's definitely going to be it's, it's going to be sad and interesting that you're not going to hear him as much on Rockets broadcast. Now, he's not completely going away. You know, as you've seen, Bill, uh, Robert, with these guys retiring like Bill Brown is a, a good example I can think of. Bill Worrell's not going to go away. He's still going to be a contributor, I guess, on AT&T uh, Southwest. But either way, you're not going to hear him as much on the Rockets broadcast. I got to speak to a couple of things that you talked about. Let me go back because you mentioned uh, KPRC. Former guest on the show, Robert Flores from the MLB Network, grew up in Houston. He said on Twitter that he begged his parents to stay up and watch Worrell's 10 p.m. sportscast in the late 70s. Uh, you also mentioned Worrell with those honest takes that he had. I mean, he was mostly Rockets homer, but there were moments where he wouldn't hold back if they were playing poorly. And unfortunately, no other Houston play-by-play voice does that or has the cachet maybe to get away with that now. And that's something that I think we might have taken for granted at times. And that's going to be sorely missed, to be honest with you. Yeah, it certainly is. And I think one of the other things that kind of gets lost in the shuffle is Bill Worrell was a guy who mentored, you know, his fellow announcers. I mean, you're thinking of Calvin Murphy. I think he was the one who convinced Calvin Murphy 
to to get into the broadcast angle of things. And yeah, you know, it, I I still miss Calvin Murphy doing the color with him on Rockets broadcast. He's a studio analyst, I guess now. But just so many people that Bill Worrell mentored, and you also forget, you know, the the chemistry that has to happen between an announcing crew in order to make it work. And Bill Worrell was very much into that and just developed chemistry with so many different types of people. And that's not easy to do, you know, for someone like you and I, Robert, that had been in the broadcast business for many years, I don't have to tell you that you don't have great chemistry with just anybody, but it didn't seem to matter who you paired Bill Worrell up with. He made it work and he made it work well. So many things I'm going to miss about him. Another thing is I love his voice. And what I mean is there's a quality about it that's genuine and down home with that Texas twang. But I also think it was about as good as it gets in the big calls, the the major moments of a game. Some broadcasters sound authentic in those huge moments and some don't. It's partially because he's a native son and that's that excitement that you get from him was just genuine. He loves Houston and you could feel it, Stephen. Yeah, you absolutely could. And, and I've always said that's what marks the good announcers from the great announcers is what do you do when you have those big moments? Do you try to be the hero and say something great that people will remember for you know decades and decades? Or do you just allow the moment to happen and whatever comes out is, is what's going to come out? And Bill Worrell was, as you said, a master at that. And, and that's really, uh, yeah, he's homegrown. And that's what's so great about it in the fact that he didn't hold back. I mean, it's so easy. It, look, I'm a, I'm a native Houstonian, Robert. So if, if I were a, an announcer, I'd probably have all kinds of trouble being critical of the Astros and the Rockets on the broadcast. I and mean, I'm certainly not, I don't have any trouble with it behind the scenes. But Bill Worrell was able to do that and, you know, have that Homer quality when he needed to. He was able to balance the two, I think, as well as anybody in the broadcast industry. And that Again, that's, I think, what sets him apart from a lot of the good announcers that are out there. It's one thing if you're a homer and you balance that with, hey, I'm a fan. I'm getting mad at the team sometimes. And that's what Worrell would do with it's different from so many of the other guys that have been doing television for the Rockets over the last few years, whether it's Bullard or Clyde Drexler. I just don't feel like they do that sort of stuff. Even Craig Ackerman, as much as I love him, just doesn't you know give that he doesn't give that angle to it. And and that's a huge difference. And then also with his departure, we lost that beautiful connection to Rockets history. He connected Calvin Murphy and Moses Malone to Akeem Madrim, to Yao Ming, to James Harden. His voice elicited ghost of Rockets basketball. Where do you get the firsthand stories of the entire Rockets history now that he's gone? Well, that's so certainly true, Robert. And I know we're going to get to Rudy T in a moment, but I felt the same way listening to Rudy T's Hall of Fame speech. It's just evoking so many memories. You know, think about how long these guys have been with the team. And so, yeah, getting back to Bill Worrell, I mean, what he took over, I believe, in 1980, which was, you know, one year before the Rockets went to the NBA Finals in that most unlikely of seasons when they were a 500 team. They shouldn't have even been there. You know, you start from there. And then you go forward to 86 when they were in the finals against the Celtics. And then the, the championship years in 94, 95, you know, and all the great years since then and all the great players that have come through there. Bill Worrell was part of that. 
I mean, that that's what is so amazing about it is you look back and 40 plus years have gone by and Bill Worrell saw every one of that. So yeah, it's just going to be, talk about a gaping hole being left in the Rockets broadcast. It just, Bill Worrell's going to leave that. It's just so many memories when you, when you listen to him and you see the highlights of some of the, you know, his last broadcast and things like that. That's, yeah, that's going to be the, the hardest thing to adjust to from a broadcast standpoint, I'm sure. The big excitement for me when I worked for the Rockets for a year, this was about 20 years ago, as I wrote a piece. It was on the Rockets Power Dancers, so no big uh, major piece. But I, <laughs> I wrote something that Bill Worrell actually read for that piece, and we did it and put it together and produced it. And, you know, I, I thought Bill Worrell was exactly who you wanted him to be, the guy that you saw on television, the decency comes across you watch the broadcast on Friday night and there was just all of these fantastic moments where people were you know thanking him through video tributes and there was just such a genuineness to all of it Matt Bullard at the end of the broadcast where not only did Matt Bullard lose a partner for him but he also lost his best friend and he was in tears talking about it at the end of the broadcast and you know that type of stuff is it's incalculable. You know, it's just really incalculable. He was, you know, really the guy was everything that you wanted and, and with somebody in that position. And, and you said he came in in 1980, but like we just said, from 1974 to 1980, he was the sports director at KPRC. So he was covering the team then when they first got to Houston, you know, he started at U of H, you know, he was sort of bridging that whole time between that rockets coming to Houston and, and, and getting a team. And, you know, he saw them from the, the infancy. It's it's such a big loss. And, and watching that broadcast, and I, I watched every second of it because, you know, I just wanted to soak it all in. But it was tough because you you think I, I, I'm losing a family member, you know, even though he's going to be around, like you said, and, and do occasional stuff. But having him on the game on a regular basis, it's it's one of those things, routine in life. You know, you just you, you love that type of thing. Yeah, absolutely. And let me tell you just how special Bill Worrell really was. If we want to wrap this up in a nutshell, when when current players think highly enough of an announcer or of anyone outside the locker room to give them the game ball after that last home game, that's what the Rockets did with Bill Worrell. They gave him the game ball. I mean, you, you talk about how, how many announcers do you know, Robert, that get a game ball after a game because of the impact that, you know, even the current team in the situation, you know, they, they weren't around for the last 40 years. Steven Silas was only, you know, a first-year coach. But to think, I mean, they obviously knew the significance of Bill Worrell and his history. But I'd say that that puts a pretty big stamp on it as far as the impact that a broadcaster like Bill Worrell had on the Rockets. Yeah, and let's emphasize the fact that Silas really didn't get to know Worrell. Bill said on the broadcast that he knew Paul very well, but he didn't get to know Stephen because of everything that's gone on this year with the pandemic. And right, it's been a right. tough year. It was, it was like, I think it might've been the thing that pushed him over the edge to call for his retirement because, you know, this year is one where you, that you cannot connect with the players like you have in the past, not to mention the fact that they're in for a big rebuild and those things are hard, but you know, Silas, I think it speaks much more for Silas and him being such a good guy because they really didn't get to know each other. And Worrell even joked, Hey, 
Rudy T never gave me a game ball, so you're one up on Rudy T. But, uh, <laughs> you know, I've got a Rockets guest scheduled for later this week, so more Warrell conversation for sure. Keep a lookout for that. But, you know, we keep dropping Rudy T. And, ah, we got to get to Rudy because Saturday's Hall of Fame induction in Springfield, Mass., Oh, it was it was long overdue. Did you catch Rudy's speech at all, Stephen? I did. Yeah, I watched the whole thing, Robert. And again, as I said a little while ago, just the, the many chills that go up and down my spine with, you know, with all the people he was thanking. I, you know, a lot of Hall of Fame speeches are pretty much centered around, you know, paying tribute to the people who got you to where you are. And I wish I had counted. Maybe I should go back and listen to it again, Robert, <laughs> and count. You know, how many people Rudy thanked through that whole speech? I think the speech itself was 13 minutes. But, man, he thought he thanked a lot of people during that time. And it's just a testament. I mean, I mean I've always said, you know, as, as great a player and a coach as, as Rudy T and, and really anyone who's been successful, as successful as he is and gets put into the Hall of Fame, it takes a lot of people to get you there. And Rudy had a lot of support, a lot of people to get him there, but that in no way diminishes the contribution that Rudy made as a player, as a coach, and and really as an ambassador to the game of basketball. And that's a testament, just a tribute to all the names that he mentioned, not just with the Rockets, but with the Lakers, the Timberwolves, even league officials that had an impact on Rudy T. And obviously he had an impact on them. One of the things that I noticed from the speech is Rudy is not good off teleprompter. So the speech was a little bit robotic at times, and you could tell Rudy was struggling a little bit more with the teleprompter than he. I've seen him struggle with the speech in the past, and I think there was a little bit of teleprompter work in his Houston Sports Hall of Fame speech, but honestly, that was so much better. It was more relaxed. You know, Rudy had good stuff in his speech that sort of saved him, some some funny things, and he was talking about the... Mario Ellie kiss and in the corner and all that kind of, but he, the thing about his, his speech was just the fact that he was up there and, you know, still in pretty decent shape and, you know, he's getting older. Um, that was the big deal. And he, he talked about Robert Ori and Robert Ori needing to be in the hall of fame. And and we love Robert Ori here. And I get it that he's won seven rings, but I don't know if I would say Robert Ori deserves to be in the Hall of Fame because his regular season stats are just, they're really weak. But yeah, he would show up big in the playoffs. I don't know what you do with that. But I was like, oh, it just seems like it was more of a homer thing since he coached Ori than it was like Ori legitimately needing to go in the Hall of Fame. What what do you think about that? Because Ori's this weird case. So he's weird of all weird. He was like Reggie Jackson without the regular season stats. Yeah, I, I would agree with that in part, Robert. And I think a lot of what Rudy T... Yeah, you know, I mean, it took quite a few years for Rudy to get into the Hall of Fame. I mean, there's a lot of question, you know, well, should he? Uh, yeah, he won two championships as a coach. So you certainly have to consider that. He was a great player with the Rockets. So, I mean, it's amazing. It took Rudy as long as it did to get him in the Hall of Fame. I certainly didn't think he was going to be a first ballot guy. But yeah, the case for Robert Ori is, is a lot cloudier. You know, they called him Big Shot Bob, but it wasn't because he made a lot of big regular season shots. It's because he made them during the playoffs. He was in the right place at the right time to win all those rings. I mean, I think a lot of the reason that Rudy uh, did it, obviously, because he coached him and he certainly, you know, loves and respects Robert as a player. So I think that really was a lot of it, you know, but maybe some of it is, hey, it took me a while to get in. Now it's my time to pass the baton and 
let, let's push forward for getting somebody else in, that being Robert Ory. Yeah, and, and if, you know, we, we, we know the baton passing happens all the time with these guys. I mean, it, we see it with other people that are up there, and they, they, they a lot of times give that uh, little push to somebody that they're trying to get into the Hall of Fame. And, you know, just, I, I also want to talk about just the Hall of Fame in general stuff. Because this Hall of Fame, you get caught up more than any where it's just the Hall of the Very Good or we got to stick somebody in this year in this category or that category because they got all these little different categories. The person that had an effect on foreign basketball or, you know, the in the women's game and stuff like that. Now, the, the, the ones that they had in the women's game going in were great. I, I don't know as much about uh, some of the other stuff, but I do know about broadcasting a little bit. Steven, you and I. You know, that that's something that we really care about. Mike Breen, he's a Hall of Famer. We sure about that? <laughs> he's a he's yeah. a he's a perfectly nice broadcaster, but I don't I don't think anybody's gonna go, oh God, do I miss Mike Breen on games? That guy was the best. You know, <laughs> as much as we criticize Major League Baseball for how selective they are about their halls of fame, I mean, how many years do you know where nobody got inducted? I mean, people players came up for induction and they didn't vote anybody in, you know, basketball is kind of the opposite. We have to remember, this is not the NBA hall of fame. It's the basketball hall of fame. So it encompasses all forms of the game, NBA, college, women, you know, broadcasting, the whole bit is all lumped together in the basketball hall of fame. So that's a lot of it, but yeah, it kind of makes you wonder. And I think the NFL does this too, to some extent is that you put guys in, you go, well, yeah, they were good, but were they great enough to be considered, you know, the the creme de la creme, the elite to be in the Hall of Fame? So I think you could certainly say that about the Basketball Hall of Fame this year and in years past. Jim Gray was another one that uh, I was like, okay, Jim Gray's getting in the Hall of Fame. And then they had the TNT broadcast basically got in and they brought up Kenny. They didn't bring up Kenny because he wasn't there. I'm sorry. They brought up Charles. And they brought up Shaq and Ernie. And what what was weird there is you're honoring a broadcast pregame show, postgame show or whatever. And yeah, it, it's been the hallmark of all of sports, but it's a weird thing to put in the Hall of Fame and Shaq getting honored for being a part of it. To me, Stephen, and I've said this on Twitter, I think I can't remember if we, you and I have talked about it on the podcast, but... Uh, I, I think it's. I think Shaq kind of has ruined it for me. It, it, it's not nearly as fun <laughs> yeah. because you know it, it's fine when Charles is you know just kind of clueless to a lot of things going on in basketball. But now you've got two guys that are playing clueless, Charles and Shaq, and it's like having two Shemps on the Three Students for a really, really, really old reference, or, or two Joeys from <laughs> Friends or something like that. It's just like what, like. We're, we're honoring Shaq for his broadcast. I mean, because that's what they're doing, basically. If you're honoring the whole TNT crew, you're honoring Shaq. And, and if it was great for a moment during the Hall of Fame stuff. I mean, it works perfectly as, you know, that's something that everybody's going to want to watch when they're watching the Hall of Fame speech, when those guys get up on stage. And that was, you know, definitely great stuff, you know, from, from all of them up there. But sorry, I just couldn't get into that. Well, my question is, what what is the exhibit for a broadcast going to look like? I mean, are they going to have like a microphone as a big guy? <laughs> I yeah, that that was weird. I, I didn't quite understand how you, uh, you're you honoring a broadcast. Yeah, you've got people there, but it's, yeah, I just, I don't, I don't understand the way of thinking in, in that regard. 
You know, it was a huge weekend for old Rockets head coaches. Uh, We got to move on from Rudy because we found out not only did he get in, but Rick Adelman got elected over the weekend to the Hall of Fame. For those of you who may have forgotten, Adelman was actually drafted by the Rockets as a player. The original San Diego Rockets drafted him in the seventh round back in 1968. Steven, this is well-deserved for Adelman. He's ninth in all-time coaching wins with 1,042. He coached the Trailblazers to two NBA finals and should have gone to the finals with the Kings if it wasn't for some just awful officiating, as we all know, in that Game 6 conference final against the Lakers. But I'm just happy that Adelman got the respect because he's somebody that you feel like sometimes got lost because he wasn't in the big markets. You know, he's coaching Portland and Sacramento, and it's not the East Coast or L.A. or Chicago. And he's kind of a low-key guy under under the radar personality too yeah i was happy to see that certainly a former rockets player coach and and sometimes i think robert it's it's not always what you do with the quote unquote big market teams if you want to use that phrase it's it's what you can do with the talent you have and to me that's what a great coach can do Uh, you can have all the talent on the court in the world but it doesn't always translate into one championship much less multiple ones and i think rick adelman is one of those guys you can point to that said you know, he was in markets where he was kind of behind the eight ball when he got there, but he made the most of it. And that's really all you can ask for if, if that's where he's going to be. So I'm, I'm very happy for Rick, certainly. I think it would have been unrealistic to expect him to win championships with Clyde Drexler as his best player in Portland or Chris Weber as his best player with Sacramento. So unfortunately, he didn't get the LeBrons or the Kobe's or the Jordans that some of these other guys get. Don't forget also that Rick Adelman was there for the Rockets 22 game win streak. He nearly beat the Lakers title team in 2009 after the Rockets lost McGrady, Yao and Matumbo. You talk about somebody that had to deal with injuries like Silas, but just somehow made something happen out of nothing. This, this kind of, uh, salad that he was left with uh, after the stakes were all off the table in that playoff <laughs> series was just incredible. And and Adelman is the third Rockets head coach going to Springfield. Uh, Rudy and don't forget Bill Fitch, Stephen. That's another. I mean, the Rockets are like uh, Hall of Fame coaching central now. Hey, well, I tell you what, with, with all that's been going on in Houston lately, the more the merrier. We get more of players that that either played their entire career in Houston or most of it or even part of it. Uh, we'll take it. Absolutely. Congratulations to Sam Houston State for their FCS National Championship. Not only did they win it this past weekend, but they did it with an Eric Schmid touchdown pass with 16 seconds left in the game. Schmid is the longtime Woodlands coach, Mark Schmid's son, who I interviewed many times over the years. Mark Schmid recently retired. Great coach over at, in the Woodlands. And, and then also they beat top-seeded South Dakota State to Get the championship. The Bearcats also came from 21 points down in the semifinal. You know, you talk about going through adversity and, and overcoming hurdles. I mean, that game was was strange for a lot of reasons, Robert. First of all, it was played in a basically a downpour. They had a lightning delay. And you talk about Eric Schmidt. Uh, uh, talk about a quarterback with guts and toughness. This guy played on a bad ankle. He, he got a bad cut on the inside of his mouth where he was bleeding quite a bit. And he he makes plays on not one, but two fourth down conversions on that final drive. And as you mentioned, you know, throwing that touchdown pass, very, you know, in the final seconds to pull it out. 
man, that that's the stuff of storybook legend right there. And it's near local, you know, so that's even better. And the first championship that Sam Houston States had, and it came in the spring. I mean, you're talking about a weird thing to go in the first place. This is spring football because, of course, the COVID-19 pandemic. So, yeah, a lot of strange stuff going on. But Sam Houston State overcame all of that and won their first championship. And now in 64, I believe they shared a title when they were in NAIA. But, hey, there's nothing like having the, the one all by yourself. So big congrats to the Sam Houston Bearcats. I want to spin back before we take off on this show. I, I got to spin back to broadcasting a little bit because, you know, we just found the news before we started the podcast that Marv Albert is going to retire after the playoff server with this year. So, you know, the NBA has lost two of the legendary voices over the last year with Dick Stockton and now Marv Albert is gone. And then one of the guys that really, to me, was the last best thing going on at ESPN Kenny Maine is kicked to the curb by ESPN. They want to give him a huge pay cut. Uh, they end up parting ways. Stephen, ESPN back in the 90s, for those that weren't around for this, it was just an incredible place to watch sports highlights at the end of the day. And I would watch him in the morning. And Kenny Maine, you know, to this day, he's just one of the most entertaining guys uh, one of the most creative, funny guys in the business is as much comedian as broadcaster, but somehow melded it at all, made it work. Didn't seem like he was trying to be like this straight up stand up comic. So he kind of did a good mixture like like a Craig Kilborn would do when he was at SportsCenter or Dan Patrick or some of the other big names that were there in the 90s. And it, to me, it speaks to where ESPN is at this time that they don't think Kenny Maine is worthy enough to be paid the salary that he was getting uh, compared to some of the other guys that they've got at ESPN now that just nobody knows, nobody could name in a lineup. Um, I, I just feel like that, that, that this perfectly sums up what's happened to ESPN over the years and why I, I just, I don't watch sports center. I, I occasionally tune into games over there, but that's, that's about it these days. Yeah, I have to agree with you, Robert. And, you know, those guys you mentioned, Kenny Maine, and you also have to throw Chris Berman, Stuart Scott, who, of course, died a number of years ago from cancer. These were guys, when, when you watch SportsCenter, yeah, you watched it for the highlights and the scores and finding out what's going on, but you also watched it just as much for the guys who were anchoring it, like the Kenny Maines, like the Chris Bermans, the Stuart Scotts. It was more than about sports. You know, the, the ESPN, of course, stands for Entertainment and Sports Programming Network. And that's exactly what it was. When you watch SportsCenter, you got the entertainment value, you got the sports value all wrapped into one. So, yeah, I, I can't even tell you the last time I watched a full SportsCenter. I, I watch it every once in a while with Scott Van Pelt. But, man, back in the 80s and the 90s when you had the guys like Berman and, and Kenny Maine and Scott and couple others that have come through there. To me, that was the peak of Sports Center and the peak of ESPN. And, you know, there's still a powerhouse network. But that just over the years, they, they've just gotten to the point where, you know, you, you even have to watch what you say when you're on there. You get too political, they'll kick you off, just all kinds of stuff. And they, of course, have had a lot of budget cuts over the last few years. So, yeah, sorry to see Kenny Maine go and sorry to see Marv Albert retiring because, once again, you know, you talk about how how much history is attached to these guys. Well, there's another guy. All this NBA history of the many years that Marv has been a part of their broadcast 
is going with it. Let me get back to Kenny for just one last thing. I was in journalism school back in the early 90s, and this is the peak of ESPN with all these guys. And Maine comes along, I think, around 94, 95 or something like that. But it was all of those particular guys. But by 94, 95, I was still doing sports anchoring in Columbia, Missouri, where I went to school at the journalism station. It's a long story, but basically the kids that are in the journalism department get to work at the station. They get to anchor sports on the weekends. And we all traded off on weekends doing different sports casts. But what Kenny Main and those guys at ESPN did as far as influencing our styles, you know, what we were trying to do, making it more entertainment, more funny. I mean, it, it, it's had ripple effects throughout the broadcast business. Those guys you know, they just changed everything. I mean, and, and Kenny Maine was somebody that came along right around that time too, that was right in that Kilbourne era and in the time where the Dan Patrick, Keith Oberman team was just at its peak. And I mean, those guys, the, the, that's the type of influencer that you just don't see in broadcasting much anymore. The guys that change the way people are doing things. And we saw that so much with the ESPN guys. Yeah, absolutely. And and I I kind of liken that to, you know, how you go out in the backyard or you go out on the basketball court and you emulate the athletes that you watch play, your heroes, and, you, you know, you pretend to be them when you're playing ball. I think it's the same way when you're practicing to be a broadcaster. Robert, I grew up in Houston, as you know. I used to listen to Jerry Trupiano and Tom Franklin and, you know, just so many guys that you have, on, have had on the podcast uh, over the years. And I, I kind of emulated my style to to listening to a lot of those guys, you know, in the Bill Worrells when they were doing sportscasts. And so I, I think it's the same way when you're when an announcer can have such an influence on you when you're trying to get into that business. It, it's the same as if you're wanting to grow up to be an athlete in the NBA or Major League Baseball in the NFL. You're going to watch these guys. You're going to try to emulate, you know, what made them great. And then, you know, some of them have made it great, like, like, uh, you know, you and I, of course, have, have made our mark in the broadcast industry. So, yeah, hats off to them, people like Kenny Mayne, for doing that. That's about all for this one. Uh, so much stuff to cover. Hope everybody enjoyed it. You can reach us on Twitter, Facebook, or email us at info at HoustonSportsTalk.net. It's info at HoustonSportsTalk.net. The main website is HoustonSportsTalk.net. You can go in the top right and donate. But, again, we're going to have a Rockets guest uh, the plan is to have a Rockets guest later this week, so keep an eye out for that. In the meantime, stay healthy and safe, everybody. You're listening to Houston Sports Talk. Don't forget to follow Houston Sports Talk on Facebook and Twitter. Subscribe to us on iTunes, Spotify, the Google Podcast app, or the Stitcher app. You can support us by giving us a five-star review on iTunes or by telling your friends about us. Spread the word, everybody. Thanks for listening.